Hello and welcome to Ruby Rogues. My name is John Epperson. I am the only panelist today. And today we have with us Mr. Christian Colossen. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Christian, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us why you're famous, sort of? <laughs> I wouldn't go as far as to say I'm famous yet, but I'm a technical agile coach and DevOps consultant. So I work to go with, to companies and help them get better at refactoring and technical practices uh, like tester development and architecture and stuff. And then, um, yeah, and that's, that's pretty much it. And then I'm writing a book also next to my job. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the book thing book things worth some kudos come on <laughs> sure yeah i also have a blog and a stream and a lot of other things <laughs> yes and we'll make sure to talk about those things at the end for sure but yeah when i went freelance i was still only a few years into my development career my first contract i was paid 60 bucks an hour due to feedback from my friends i raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract and due to the podcasts i was involved in and the screencasts i had made in the past i started getting calls from people i'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So today, uh, the topic that, that we planned to talk about was refactoring to five lines of code. Did you did you want to, to say anything in particular about that or maybe kind of get us into the topic? So five lines of code is the fundamental rule of the book is what I like to say. So it's the it's where the book starts. It's the first rule. And I call it rule-based refactoring in my book because it's about getting all of your methods down to five lines of code, which is not so short that it's impossible, but it's short enough that you're going to have to get creative and learn new techniques probably to break up long if-else chains and stuff like that. And so that's why I chose five lines of code. Is the five lines of code a reference to Sandy Metz's sort of rule there? I'm not Five lines for methods? Oh, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll, I'll go find that and uh, try and Try and paste that in. Fair enough. So five lines of code. It's interesting if you separately came to the conclusion that everyone feels that that's good. I guess. I mean, it seems uh, it seems like it's a it's a sweet spot. I also saw some research recently that uh, did, or an analysis of how many bugs per code there was in code bases with different average lengths of method, and the sweet spot was five to six lines. Uh, if it got shorter, it started going up again and getting worse. And if it got longer, it also got worse. So it's it seems to be a good a good sort of middle place. I mean, I think so. I'm very I'm a very intuitive programmer, which is part of the reason why I have to I, I come up with all sorts of rules and things for myself just because I'm an intuitive like I just naturally am intuitive. So, but yeah, I feel like I always like felt really good. I, I I'm familiar with Sandy Metz's rules, which I just linked in in chat so that we can add that to our show notes or whatever. But I'm familiar with her rules and she was like, get things to like five lines. And I did that and I was like, oh, this feels good, right? So so I've always done it by feel that mm. it feels good. Yeah. Makes sense to me. So, okay. So you, in this book, you you create some rules for refactoring. I'm used to definitely saying, hmm, this spot smells bad. I, I should do something about it. So how is that different? Than, than that sort of like intuitive, like, you know, I don't know, feeling based. Yeah. So the system. intuition is, is definitely also what I, I use in most of uh, my, actual, uh, my actual work. But the problem is that I found it, it's very difficult for junior programmers to get into sort of how code smells work and stuff. If you read about them, you can sort of understand what they're like, but it's very difficult to get the feeling to, to know whether something is actually smelly or not un until you've seen a lot of code, right? and both good and bad, and worked with good code. And I like to think that the best way to learn about refactoring and the need for refactoring is to just try working with some nice code and get used to that feeling. And then when you see some code that isn't like that, then you know. But that's really hard to obtain, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of practice. So what I wanted to do uh, with this book is um, come up with a set of rules that could help get people started doing nice code quickly. It should, it should help them get used to nice code just by a lot of it being better 
and and I don't believe that my rules by any means are the final measure or uh, universally good code or universally applicable, but I feel like they're better than not doing anything. And yeah, once you sense. get used to looking at short methods that are only five lines, that might not apply to all methods, but when you then then you've gotten used to it, you know that that's sort of what you like being around. And so it gives you that that feeling, that sense of when something has good properties or bad properties. That totally makes sense. And I completely understand because that's legitimately like I, I almost like find myself apologizing when I'm talking to like somebody who's more junior and I'm just like, well, you just have to do it a lot. And then yeah. you'll like understand what it's like. And I don't have a better way. So this is very attractive from the standpoint of like, from, from my perspective of having coded for a long time, it's still very attractive because I'm like, sweet, here's a book that'll tell me how to tell a junior how, how things work. What is the intended audience for this book? I, we're totally talking about the book a lot here, but yeah, let's just roll with it. Yeah, so it's intended for uh, for junior programmers. But but also, as you say, I also, as a tech lead and as a person who mentors a lot of uh, junior programmers, also use it then, right? It's a good way to, if you have a team that are struggling to get started with refactoring, I think it's a good way to introduce it into a team where you can say, okay, uh, guys, let's just adopt one rule every two weeks or something and then see where we get, right? And you don't have to do it to the entire code base, but just having that in mind can help you get started on that journey fairly like with a lot lower barrier to entry. But the main audience is definitely people who have not yet read the refactoring and clean code and the other um, great books in the topic. So it's sort of a, it's a, it's a small stepping stone towards those more, more uh, complete books. Yeah, it makes total sense. I have totally sensed plenty of frustration from juniors who are just like, so I'm not allowed to refactor code because I don't, I'm not, good enough yet right like and they're, they're just frustrated because they're getting that feeling and and i'm just like no it's actually my fault right because i can't i can't explain it to you and and that's kind of deficiency in me so i sweet hopefully solving some of that so okay so are there are there other things in this book is it just about refactoring like do you give other good because it kind of feels like rules of thumb here are there other good things are you providing like a good, how should I put it, like sort of, I don't know, glossary or dictionary of techniques. I'm like thinking like from when I sort of graduated from just like refactoring things by feel to like actually being like, okay, I recognize this particular kind of problem and here are my my toolbox of solutions that I could use for this problem, right? And, and then I pick out of my toolbox a specific solution, right? So I had a, I, I began to create a process in my mind. All of a sudden, like refactoring became one, a lot easier for me, two, more consistent. And then like, I feel like everybody else liked my refactors a lot better. Like, are you providing like a good, but, but that to me, like I have this one website that I've gone to for like 10 years now, like, and I legit just like pull up this website and I like just sit there and I'm like, ah, oh, yes, it's this one on this. Like now I kind of know where it is and stuff, whatever. But but I still legitimately just go through there. It's just part of my process. Are you providing like a sort of glossary, like an index? I don't know how, what that is exactly. So like there is a lot list of newer refactoring patterns in, in my book than in, in a book like uh, Martin Fowler's. And that's uh, deliberate because I, I want people to uh, sort of adopt them and get familiar with with a few ones that are that seem to be at least in my experience uh, by far the most applicable ones, and then build uh, more esoteric patterns on top of that. So I there is a there's going to be like a uh, like an overview of the different refactoring patterns and the different rules, of course. But I I'm hoping to keep it down to a level where people can actually internalize them and learn them by heart uh, in the first part of the book, and then the second part of the book is more about some values that I've internalized that help me write better code and help me l- like look for the right refactoring. So the, the right things to value. So it's, there are things like love deleting code, right? Where it's, it encourages you to look for places where you can actually delete stuff as your primary function, because deleting stuff is an immediate way to add, to make the code base more valuable. If you don't do it at the cost of some functionality, that's actually even more valuable, right? Code is a liability. It's it's heavy to maintain. It's difficult. It comes with a lot of uh, a lot of frustration and issues. So if we can get rid of a lot of unused code or unnecessary code or ultimately unvaluable code, then I mean, that's a great way to continue. And and that's the second part of the book is sort of these 
these value propositions or, or things that make that can help you choose what to focus on, priorities or virtues or something. I don't know what to call them. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Could you go more into those? I, I mean, okay. So recognizing the fact that like you might not want to say everything, could, we, could you kind of summarize at least maybe most of those values? Most of them will take a while, I guess. Okay. The All right. Are, the chief ones, maybe. <laughs> the One of my favorites, and the first one that you hit in, in part two is use the compiler, work with the compiler. The compiler is such a powerful tool. And I feel like for a lot of people, it's mostly frustration and not really help, right? And if the compiler is just a tool you use to compile and, and don't get any assistance in your writing of your code or maintaining your code, then you're really not utilizing as much as you could, likely. So for languages that have a type system like C Sharp or Java or TypeScript or whatever, you can actually encode a lot of properties about your program directly into the programming language. It supports that, but not a lot of people, I think, use it or are familiar with it. And I just love sort of going on explorations with the compiler and seeing what can I actually make the compiler detect for me? How much can I make it shout at me if I do something that is unintended, right? Because the compiler doesn't get fooled. It doesn't forget and it doesn't, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a powerful thing to, to encode things into your programming language like that. Um, so, so for Rubyus, like where we don't have a compiler, we have interpreter, but I, I feel like the analogous thing in our world is probably like all the tooling that we have, uh, all of our linters and static analyzers, things like that. Uh, I mean, like the compiler's performing some of that function for you and we're, we, we have other tools to do it or whatever instead. But yeah, I mean, like using your tools, I guess in general, might be a more generalized way of saying that. But I mean, there's, this is definitely, yeah, like rather than seeing like your tool, like for example, we use a lot of RuboCop or or other, other linters, for example, a standard RB is like becoming a little bit more popular now, but like these things aren't blocking you from getting your PR in. They're helping you to make your code better before you get it in, right? Like seeing it as as an assist rather than as a gateway. Yeah, exactly. Okay, sweet. Any any other particular high value ones that you wanted to hit up on, maybe? So uh, I'm writing, currently I'm writing chapter, uh, uh, we're working on getting chapter 10 through, which is love, uh, never be afraid to add code. And when I'm writing a chapter or working on a chapter, that sort of becomes my whole world, right? I get totally absorbed in it. I, I study it. I write it. I uh, rewrite. I rewrite. I rewrite. And so right now, that's what's taking up most space in, space in my head, uh, obviously. It's about Sounds how good. A, lot of, a lot of people get scared of writing code for a lot of different reasons. Like we can have a fear of imperfect code. That's, uh, that's a big one. And comes with all of the imposter syndrome and all of those bad things that come with that. And so I discussed sort of how to, possible solutions to get around that or possible or symptoms that I see sometimes when I visit new teams as a consultant and how I spot whether they're afraid to add code and what I do about it. And then I discuss ways to make adding code safer and so that you, so that you never should be afraid to add code. Just adding code is exciting, it's experimenting, Programming is about learning the domain that you're implementing. So the more, like, we should never be afraid to experiment like that. Just add stuff, see what it does, get moving. Okay. I mean, that that makes sense. I uh, So just to make sure that, like, I'm thinking about the same thing, I, I'm kind of imagining, like, oftentimes all I'm doing is stitching, like, multiple libraries together, right? Like, a lot of my work is that, right? Like, hey, here's this thing over there that I'm, dragging in or here's this API I'm supposed to grab information from and deliver it to this other place over there, right? Like I'm literally just stitching things together a lot of times. And sometime, a lot of the time, wow, I just, my bad. So some of the time I I find myself having to back away and say, eh, actually, why, why am I doing this? Like, why am I trying to stitch these things together? They both are awkward and they don't fit this case very well. And I should, I actually, in this case, need to write something. And so I don't know. I, I always feel like for me, it's a pendulum swing. Like sometimes I'm writing too much, like I'm writing too much code and I really could have been grabbing somebody else's library. They're going to maintain it better than I was. You know, maybe it's a major open source library that I just wasn't paying attention to the fact it was there. And sometimes like I flip to the other way where I'm just like, like you said, almost like afraid to write code. And, and I have thought about it as like a fear and I've had to be like, oh no, it's fine. 
Yeah, so there, there are different things to say about that. So if there are li libraries, of course, that solve the same problem, then maybe it makes sense to do those. In a lot of cases, though, I've found that the way that we learn about code like that or the way that we learn about the customers or users we're working with is by just experimenting. I'm a, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of doing spikes from the extreme programming base, I think. Sure, yeah. Um, that's just start writing some code. And the only, the only rule is this code can never make it onto the master branch, right? And that's just about building knowledge, building confidence to build the right thing afterwards. And, and that experimentation part is such a huge part of programming for me and for the people I, I talk with and, and who I coach that there is really no, no substitution to getting that practice, to just doing it, like just write more code. If you throw it away, that's fine. If, if you end up uh, unifying it and then throwing some of it away or it becomes irrelevant or something, I, I don't really care so long as you just have the opportunity to experiment and, and to improve both the code base and your knowledge and your skills. And that comes from adding code. And deleting it because you, you just brought that up and they have to be able to delete it too. Yeah, and then uh. afterwards you delete it. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, that's a really... Okay, so so to kind of like move back, I mean that that is definitely a thing that like every single junior that I've mentored, the one the one thing that has been common is I've had to teach people that it's okay to throw stuff away. I don't I don't think anyone I, I don't think there's ever been anyone that that has just come out being okay with that. Everyone sort of like really struggles, myself included. I mean, even to this day, like I have to remind myself, right? Like part of my mental discipline that it's totally okay to throw stuff away because you're just like well, i spent time and blood and energy in this thing it's not a natural thing to just throw it away yeah and it just it makes everything having more code that's not necessary just makes everything harder it's harder to test it's harder to understand it takes longer to read it's harder to refactor like it's all of these things it breaks easier in places that are not even used anymore there are so many bad things that come along with just having a lot of code especially if it's not if it's not pulling its weight, get rid of it. This is fair. So are there un any other like underlying philosophies or whatever other like just motivations or drivers like I guess that are like kind of helping you decide what to refactor? Yeah, I mean, take that where you want to go with it. So yeah, so um, uh, the there's a, another chapter that's yet to be written. So I might say something now that isn't how it, the book is going to turn out. Um, sure but it's called Follow the Structure and the Code. And it's a lesson I learned when I was studying how to do very, very difficult and intensive type-directed programming, uh, or not even type-directed, dependently-typed programming, which is about you know formally proving your software is bug-free through the types and stuff. It's very complicated. Mm -hmm. And what I learned then is, is the tight-tight coupling there is between our data and the way that is structured and the programs that should be structured alongside of it. So if we have something that has a recursive nature, like a tree, then we should also process that uh, through a, a recursive functions then in that case. And that struck like a very deep chord with me. And I've been thinking about it ever since that we can find the structure in a lot of places. And refactoring really, for me, is this the process of moving behavioral structure of a program and making it into structure in the code that we can actually look at. In that view, refactoring really just becomes about making code mobile and making it moldable and making it something we can treat as if it were an object in itself. So in that sense, it's like higher order code. We just move around stuff and, and then other structures fall out of that. And it's like, it's like combing through filtered hair and stuff. And once you've done that, you have a much clearer picture of how that how this thing actually works. And maybe you can find stuff that shouldn't be like they are or should be different or how, you can see how it changes and how it evolves. You can see the history. Kevlin Henney has this, uh, I think it's, it's fair to say it's a famous saying by now that in, in error, our program reveals its structure. I, mm -hmm. think, I think that's a super cool saying, you know, and it, it really... I think it, it suggests the same thing that I'm also very much into, the fact that there are these levels of structure and we can actually move them and we can move the structure around, which is super interesting. I find all of this stuff very interesting. And I, I don't know if necessarily you're that, that we want to dive too deep. I, I've always found that trying to prove that my code is bug-free is really 
only trying to prove that my code is free of certain classes of bugs because you can still have stuff where I'm just doing the wrong stuff or whatever. But yeah, I mean, then it becomes a, a thing of semantics or whatever here or whatever. But yeah, yeah. There, are, there are one way to make sure your, your code is bug free. Just make sure the, the specification is also code and it's also runnable. <laughs> oh, man. That's true. It's called test. <laughs> it could be called test. It could also be types. Uh, that's fair. Okay. So, I mean, if there's more motivations that you wanted to get to, I, I would love to hear about any of those. Otherwise, we can kind of move on from this sort of segment, as it were. I, I don't have any more like ready and written. And that means that no my, my thoughts about them are sort of jumbled. That's fair. Then I'll, I'll try and like try and grab some stuff. So what made you decide that you wanted to write this book as opposed to just, for example, I have opinions on things, but usually I just stick with chatting with people and maybe having some, you know, expressing my opinions through conversation with my coworkers or other people that I meet. What made you decide to go and you're like, my opinions are either important enough or, or you just felt like there was a gap or whatever it is that made you decide to jump all the way to writing a book? I've, I've always liked writing. From when I was a very small child, I, liked, I drew these children's books with little ghosts in them and told stories about them. And my mom would write in the text. So I've always liked the writing and the creating and, and that aspect of it. I've started uh, countless books that hasn't gotten anywhere because it turns out to be uninteresting or hard or that I did, just didn't have the knowledge necessary to do this thing. So when this book actually came about mostly during a conversation with my best friend where he was like, hey, can you show me something really cool quickly? And I'm like, uh, I don't know, let's just open up a computer and see if I can impress you with something. And uh, we came up with the, or I mean, I came up with these rules in sort of an attempt to impress him. And after we had that session, it lasted a few hours. I was uh, on my way home and I was thinking, this was actually pretty cool. I mean, this might actually be be important. I better write it down when I get home. And so when I got home, I started writing it down. And since uh, my usual format for writing notes like that was just in a book format that just came naturally to write it down as if it were going to be a book. And then it, it lay there on, uh, on my hard drive for a year without me looking at it. And then I found it again. And I was like, oh, what's this? Uh, this seems interesting. And I, uh, I surprised myself with some of the things. I was like, this is actually really useful and really, this is really smart. And so I added to it, right, and made it even better. And again, I forgot about it for another year before I took it out again. And a long time passed. And then one of my mentors asked, well, who is it helping being on your, on your hard drive? And I was like, oh, I, I guess you have a point, actually. So I like to help people. And then the point of writing it up was that it might be useful for someone. And so it's definitely not because I think it's more important or that I'm more important. It's because I hope that to a few people, at least, this can be useful as it has been to me. And that's why I contacted uh, Manning and, and asked if, if they wanted to join me on this project. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I, I think it's good to hear. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, personally, I will probably never be writing a book. It's just not, I've never been able to make that leap myself. That's okay. I'm glad that, that some people are, and I think that's super cool. Okay, so what's, you put, you put something in, in our notes or whatever about, I mean, you put a few things in our notes, but you put something in here about testing. And I wasn't exactly sure that was what you were referencing there and thought maybe you might want to talk about that a little bit. Okay. In the book, it can somehow feel like it's not, that, that I don't support testing. And, I, and I, I just want to be very clear at as many opportunities as possible that I actually do support testing and I like testing a lot. And I also go and coach people about uh, how to do testing efficiently. But I also have sort of an unusual opinion in that I don't think you actually need to understand testing in order to understand refactoring. I think they can be split up into two separate things that you can learn separately. And I think that's an efficient way to do it. And that's sort of unusual because in most, when most people talk about refactoring, the first step is you need to do TDD to do refactoring. And while that, that's probably true in, an, in a production setting. I don't think it necessarily is in a learning setting where you just need to get these concepts down first can be efficient, I think. Because I think test-driven yeah. development is difficult. It's difficult to learn. And refactoring, to me at least, is easier. I think that makes total sense to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I like using test-driven development. For example, 
we find a bug in production, right? Like, I think that's great. You already have your failing test right there, right? You're failing test. Now make a pass, right? Like, yeah, that's, that's your workflow already when you're dealing with bugs. So TDD totally fits naturally in there. So that one's always been an easy sell for me. But it totally makes sense. Like your your argument of like, okay, well, when you're trying to teach somebody how to do factor, right? Or when you're when you're just busy drinking from the fire hose and learning, right? Like it's really hard when you're like, but you have to do this thing first, or you also have to do this. Like anytime you can get that stuff out of the way, it's helpful. So it totally makes sense that that you could set that aside. And if you're sitting there, okay, yep, it, it definitely even makes more sense. Cause if you're sitting there with, hey, that I mean, I do it by co-smells, right? But like, I have this situation. Here are the set of tools that I need to refactor, right? Like, you you already have like this guided path, so it's not completely just emotional, like swapping in lines of code, <laughs> in mm. and out, right? You you already have technique. Yeah. All right, cool. Hopefully, it should also actually make testing easier if you have a situation. So I, I know this is fairly rare, luckily, in industry, but some. Some organizations and some teams don't actually have a lot of tests already. Saying to them that you need to have test-driven development or uh, test coverage up before you can do refactoring is not really helpful in a lot of situations, right? Because you can't just put testing onto something. You need it to actually have an architecture that supports being mocked out. And you you need all of these other things. You actually need sometimes to do refactoring to even get to the point of testing. So I'm also thinking about those people uh, because I've been in that situation too. And having to do it without tests is possible. It's just, it requires more manual testing. It requires more smaller steps and you to be more uh, deliberate and more careful when you do the refactoring and stuff like that, or tools to help you do the refactoring. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software And what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. I actually think that brings up a really good topic, right? Which is that, is manual testing testing? And I mean, I, in my opinion, I agree with you here, right? Like, it is testing. <laughs> it's just it's just not automated testing. Yeah. It's a little more error prone and it's a lot more time consuming. I think actually automated testing doesn't solve the, the testing issue. It solves the testing being efficient issue because it's not feasible to do manual testing of big systems in the way that automated testing can. Fantastic point right there. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. I don't know that that I completely agree with you that it's rare for places to not have tests. I feel like it is definitely an unpopular thing to say that you don't have tests or whatever. And like, I don't have an in like there, but I, I think it's an unpopular thing to like advertise that you don't have tests. But I feel like a lot more places that are willing to admit it don't have tests. Because if you have a failing test suite, for example, that takes an hour to run, you effectively really don't have a testing solution. Like maybe you have some written tests, but think about the work that it takes to get that test suite up and running. Some developer is going to have to spend like a freaking week deleting a bunch of tests, running it a million times, trying to get it like up to a reasonable pace. And then and then you're going to have to like, you're going to say, wow, we got like all these massive holes in our test suite. And those are the places that we actually care about testing and these other tests we don't care about. Right. So then anyway. Yeah. And yeah. also just just having a green test suite is is actually fairly rare in a lot of cases, because then you have those tests that we don't really talk about or that we don't run because they're red anyway. And it's like, (laughs) why are they there then? I mean, if you don't run them, get rid of them. If you don't trust your tests, they shouldn't be there. That's the only reason to have tests is to increase your confidence. Oh man, I'm gonna have to make the title of this episode tests or something about testing, but yeah. No, I, I I definitely have started saying this a little bit more recently on Ruby Rogues, but I'm actually a big fan of if if you have a test that doesn't run or like, for example, it's like too flaky, like, I don't know when it gets flaky, like maybe that's gray area or whatever. But like, if it doesn't run, if you, if your test suite isn't green, like 
you need to start using your delete button. That's sort of my my opinion on things because it's bringing no value to you to have that stuff. So yeah, I have a whole section in in the chapter that's love deleting code about tests and how, which ones you should delete. And I have like the optimistic ones where if you have tests that are always green and have never been read, delete them, get rid of them. They're not testing anything. They're not useful. They're just taking time every time you run them. If you have ones that are flaky, for me, that's not a gray area. Just delete them immediately because you can't have confidence in flaky tests, right? And they will also cost you a lot more headaches when you have to implement rerunning the tests three times because sometimes they pass or something like that. Just make the tests pass all the time. Make them stable. Make them solid. I don't know that I'm completely sold at this moment on just deleting flaky tests, but I can say that your argument makes a lot of sense and that I have to think about it. It is it's very persuasive. So that's that's my thoughts right now. But I definitely hadn't really thought about just deleting flaky tests. So I was always like, well, that's work that needs to be done. But maybe maybe deleting the test is brings the right amount of pain to you so that you'll actually come back later and fix it when you yeah. need it. I think the advice in the book is fix it or delete it. But don't let it okay. be. Don't have flaky tests for longer than a few minutes because either you're in the process of fixing it or you're in the process of deleting it. You shouldn't have them like in your version control, let's say then. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm buying. I think I'm buying. Cool. All right. So we've talked a bit about like refactoring for the sake of like making our code, I guess, like better, right? But there are other reasons that we might refactor. For example, if I want to make my code faster, like performance optimizations, things like that, or, or like other sort of motivations that, let me correct my term, the most of the things that we've been talking about seem to be related to quality. Can you talk about any of the other reasons why you might refactor code? And, and is that any is that a little bit different or anything? There are several reasons to ref, uh, to sort of that one might refactor code. And one of them being uh, performance optimization, another being to make it more general. I think a lot of computer scientists or uh, people who've gone to any sort of higher uh, education have been sort of indoctrinated to feel like generality is the source of everything that's good, right? If you have a theorem that can prove more thing, it's a better theorem. If you have a theory in physics that uh, can encompass more or explain more of the real universe, then it's a better theory. And I, I feel like that doesn't apply in code, but we still sort of feel like it does. If you have a function that's more general than another function, then you are opening yourself up to being called from way more places. You're making that function way harder to delete. And, and you're, you're having code that is likely a lot more complicated than just having, uh, say, different specific versions. And, and in a lot of cases, it's, it's actually not, it's neither beneficial nor necessary to have that generality. So I'm, I'm trying to pull back against, for instance, refactoring to get more general functions, at least in the industry. It might not be so in, in academia or, or other places. Similarly, I feel like performance optimizations are often um, not warranted enough to do them. A lot of people think if they can write some code that's just super efficient, that's super cool. And it is cool. And I wish I could, I could do it too. But it's also often not the most valuable thing to be doing. I, I like to say that you can't do performance optimization until you have, in the same way as a test-driven does, a performance test that tells you why you need to optimize this code. Right? And when you have a test that shows it, then it's fine because it's part of your specification. It's part of something that you've codified and committed to, uh, to maintaining. But it's, ex it's, an, it's an expensive type of requirement. And it, it, it just, it's not something that regular programmers should be doing every, every day. It's something that specialized people who are really, really good at this thing should be doing, assisted by specialized tools like profilers. Okay, so let's address the second our thing first. I totally agree with you. That like I feel like people are really fast to prematurely optimize. Basically, it's like that's my accusation a lot of times is, hey, you aren't measuring your performance. So one, you don't know whether your refactor actually did something better or not. And number two, like you don't you don't actually have a sense. Most people when they're when your job is really to deliver features, right? You don't actually have a sense of because you're not getting good feedback on whether or not it's really all that valuable to get that little bit more performance. Most of the time, project managers really aren't conveying that well. Of course, they want everything to be fast, cheap, 
and the best, right? Everyone wants yeah. that, yeah, but <laughs> we're in the job of doing tra- dealing with trade-offs here. So, but that also leads into the dealing with the first thing you said. It kind of so it kind of sounded like, uh, and pardon me if I, I, I think that I'm distilling your argument fairly. So correct me if I'm wrong. But I think what you're saying is when we trade basically complexity for or like simplicity, I guess was what we're trading away for the sake of getting generality, you're like, that's not really a valuable thing. What's valuable is when we trade away simplicity for 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 value of some kind, functionality of something. So you, I think, are arguing against whenever you're refactoring for generality and and you're increasing complexity as you do, which you most of the time are, that that's generally a bad trade. It's at least something to be very careful with. I won't. I can't say whether it's it's uh, good or bad in specific situations without looking at them. But I think we do. We I've seen people overdo it at least, and so I want to pull back a little bit on that and say generality should be motivated by something. It should make something simpler, as you say, right? And if you have, for instance, two things that always change together, and they're similar, then it might make a lot of sense to unify those things so you don't have to maintain both of them. Right, that simplifies something. So that's a good argument to, to add the, to make a more general version that you can then maintain only that copy instead. But not trying, try, having some weird function and some other function that are sort of similar but not really, and then trying to unify those, even though they don't change together, they don't change for the same reasons. They're not really related, other than they look like each other. They have sort of the same structure, sort of the same behavior. That that's not a good place to to add that generality. Yep. Nope. Totally makes sense. You're you're arguing that like we we go and worship at the dryness shrine so much that we like basically are over trying to dry everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's fair. Okay. Anything else in particular that you wanted to hit up with regards to that? With regards to the to dry, I have a lot of opinions about dry and I and I think they're also expressed in a lot of places in the book that I'm not afraid to duplicate code at all. I actually very much prefer starting out a new ticket or a a new thing by duplicating something that's existing and then experimenting with it, right? And I'm I'm getting back to that point that I had earlier, that experimentation is really the way that we learn about the software that we're building. And so I feel like whenever you start something new, you want a high experimentation uh, freedom. And you get that from duplicating code because you have no couplings to anything else. You have no dependencies. You can just do whatever you want, right? You can hack and slash that code into pieces in the, for the sake of just understanding what it's doing and how it's going to function in this new context that you're trying to put it in. And so in that way, I think, as you say, we're trying to dry things a little too much in a lot of cases. I think dry is useful only, as I said before, when you have code that actually needs to change together often, then you should probably unify it. But I also do like to do it in, in that order. I like to duplicate first, then make a lot of modifications and whatever. And then once I have something that I'm happy with, then go back and, and see, does it make sense to unify this with the original place I copied from? And in some cases, it, it, it just doesn't. Totally. Makes sense. I mean, to me, this kind of fits along the lines of like, so, so I see a lot of analogous things between the arts in general and coding or whatever. It makes me think like, we think that basically the masters of like romantic artistic pieces are masters and the masters of like classical and like all these different quote unquote movements or whatever. Right. But they all do things like very differently. And I, I, I guess it's like, I was sitting here thinking, I was like, well, you have some, you have some, a slightly different, like sort of like, so for example, I tend to be a person that dries a lot. And then I say, whoa, I shouldn't dry this thing up. Right. Like that's too far. So I have a tendency to lean that way. And and I don't think that's bad. I think the important thing is like the consistency. Like, do you sort of have a system? Do you have like a, a way to bail out, right? And and deal with nuance in a situation with that's an edge case or whatever, right? Things like that. And I think that's important to like mastery. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I, I like to be guided by the, as I said, the structure that's in the code and the structure that's around the code. So, so I look for the fact of whether this code tends to change when some other code change and use that, that as my basis for what to unify and where to do 
most of my refactorings is also where most of the changes happen because that's where we need to be effectively changing a lot, right? So I like to be gui guided by what I actually see and the structure that I can actually measure. I also like that North has this really cool pattern he calls spike and stabilize, where he says, just write your code in, a, in the ugliest manner, right? As if it were a spike and just put it into production with a lot of monitoring on it and then see if it's going to get used, right? See if it's actually valuable. Mm -hmm. it, the, only, the only requirement is that it doesn't mess up the whole application, right? And that it's, it's working because otherwise you're not going to get the useful data you need. And then after about six weeks or so, you can go back and you can then do your refactoring. You can then do your test run development, throw out the code, write a good version, and, and see. Now you know that you have something that's valuable already. And you don't have to spend a lot of time that's then not going to be used because sometimes we just miss the mark on our features. And, and I mean, for all sorts of reasons, and that's fine. So it makes sense to sort of postpone for as long as possible this investment of making the code really good with testing and refactoring. I think that's probably a little too edgy for me, but it does make sense, right? I, for one, like I have this sort of rule of thumb, for example, like I don't generalize a solution unless I've written it twice. Like the, twice is the minimum for me. And I need to feel good. Like I feel like I understand the generalized solution. So that sometimes means that twice isn't enough, right? So, so I'll have duplicated similar like code in a couple places in my code base before I'm willing to refactor that into a generalized solution. That's that's sort of rule of thumb for me. And obviously like I'm teaching that to other people or whatever, but yeah, that makes sense. I certainly am not at the place where I'm willing to just like, just let my naive solution go to production at this point, but. <laughs> so long as it doesn't break anything, then it's, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. I feel like it's harder to, I, I, for me, refactoring is actually, like you pointed this out earlier, right? Like one of the reasons why we refactor is to make things easier to code. And I have a sort of set of default refactorings. I feel like this is normal from me talking to other developers and things like this, right? Like you sort of have these default refactors that you'll do like right away. It's just like you sort of have your own set that you've defined for yourself. You're just like, okay, well, I wrote this code down. Oh, like, I'm going to turn this into a bunch of methods here or whatever, right? Like, and you just do that by default. And that's what your your first solutions look like or whatever. And I think that's perfectly fine. I think it's because those are really well practiced by you. Uh, you tend to have habits that go along with that. Hopefully they're good ones, you know, theoretically, things like that. But yeah, so I think I think you're talking about not those refactors, right? Where I'm just sort of like, because I couldn't put the naive before that set of refactors. I feel like I have to put that set of refactors on for myself because then that makes it easier to test. Then after that, it's like, okay, well, now I'm not really happy with this code, for example, that I wrote. Like, and I want to like refactor, create some classes here or something. Those are probably more along the lines of what you're referring to. Does that seem right? So I think for every mastery, once you've once you've done something a lot of times, it just becomes second nature and you do it in your head before you even need to see the problem, right? And I don't do a lot of the refactorings I write in my book. I don't do them post-fact uh, kind of way. I don't look at the finished code and then be like, oh, I need to refactor this. I actually just know that I got, I'm going to have to do this later and do it directly immediately. That's fair. And, and, I, and I hope other people have that sense too, because that immediately, like, I don't, I don't, introduce a lot of strategy patterns post-fact. I just, I, I do them immediately because I know there's going to have to be a strategy pattern in this sort of code because I have that feeling I've done it a thousand times or something. And so yep. now I can just, I can just spot them. I saw a talk by Dave Thomas, the pragmatic programmer, um, yes. who said that he liked test-driven development, but in a lot of cases, he didn't need to write uh, like the test first to drive the code because he knew how the code was going to feel, right? The tests, he could write tests afterwards. That was fine. But he already knew how the code was going to pan out because he'd done it so, so many times. I feel like it's easier for me to write test-driven development first when I know how the code's going to pan out, but shoot. Okay, so so actually following on that, so I, I find that when I'm pairing with people that are, I, I mostly pair with people that are uh, more junior than I, right? Like that doesn't mean they're all juniors, but but more junior than I. And I often find when I'm doing so that... I need to write a more naive solution and then refactor into the things that I typically do. But you're correct. If I'm writing on my own without a pair, I just skip all those steps, right? Is that, is that ring true? Yeah. Is that what we're, okay. 
fair enough. Yeah, and I totally like the fact of of getting code to work before you start doing the refactoring, before you start going crazy with all of these different things. Just sit down, get the functionality that you want, lock that thing in, and then you can look at, because I like to do structure, uh, like fo- refactoring followed by the structure in the code, that makes it a lot easier to do the refactoring once you can see the code working, you can see the structure, you can see the behavior. You might not be able to, if you're doing code for like um, the tax code of your country, I guarantee you, you are not going to be able to figure out how the refactorings are going to be before you have the code because it's so complex and you don't know that domain probably. And, and that means just write them down in a naive way, look at them and then start molding them with refactorings. Makes total sense. So I wanted to ask this particular question because I feel like a lot of developers, uh, just over the years, I've encountered a bunch of people who are like, hmm, I think I might write a book about that or things like that, right? So I kind of wanted to ask you about that transition. Like, and I feel like my first question in that way is like, I mean, how does it feel to be an author? Like, what, what is that like for you yeah, now that you've so done it? it <laughs> I'm, I'm almost an author, I guess. Once the book is uh, hopefully it's fair. It's a lot of work is the first thing I should say. I mean, it has, it has both ends of the spectrum. Like I think every job has. When, when somebody reaches out and tells me that the book has been useful to them or that they helped them with solving some issue or something that's the best feeling ever right you've helped someone you've made someone stay a little bit better and i and i love that feeling it's the best thing i know and on the opposite end of the spectrum once you spend a long time working on something and nurturing something and you send out a new chapter right that you just poured your heart and soul into and then the very next day you have to open up an empty file and start from scratch again that's that's, it seems so insurmountable at that point, you know, it's so hard to do. Can you, can you talk about, yeah, talk about, cause I don't have the context. Why do you have to open up an empty file the next day? Well, the book has to be, we have to, uh, it takes a lot of time to write the chapters. Actually, it takes me somewhere, I think between 50 and hundred hours for each chapter. And we have to publish them at a pretty regular schedule to get done in, in like before in this year, hopefully. Okay. And so that just means that there needs to be a certain pace that I need to keep up. So there are not a lot of days off, especially because I'm working also full time. Right. Okay. So opening up the new file is like, hey, you're starting on the next chapter or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. I think I got it now. Awesome. Okay. So, I mean, I guess, is there anything else that you want to, that you might, if you were looking back at younger you right before you took on doing a book, is there anything else that you feel like you would, you would want to let that person know? I always do a lot of research before I make a decision. And I did so before signing with Manning as well. I researched how other authors felt about working with Manning and working with other publishers. And I uh, talked to uh, to a lot of people. And what I found to be the most useful advice from that, uh, or the most useful takeaway is, it's a job. Like the other people you're working with are depending on you to make an income and you should treat it as a job. And I've, I've went into this project with the with the mindset that this is just another job. I have deadlines and I have other things. It's not something that I'm doing for me anymore. It's not something that I'm just doing when it feels fun or when I like to. It's a job. I need to do it. There's a schedule. There are other people. Be professional, right? And I think that's helped a lot with the process. And and it doesn't mean that I that I don't get sad or annoyed or stubborn maybe when I get feedback or things I need to change, but. I, I do need to remind myself, and, and that has helped a lot, that this is a profession. And we're doing a professional book, and it means I can't be the perfectionist that I maybe would like to be. And yeah, I think that's the best advice to people thinking about getting into book writing. Awesome. So if people want to get in touch with you, follow you, other things, like how do they, how do, they do that? I try to be as available as possible on the internet. So I have a GitHub, of course, like most programmers. I also have a blog on Medium that people can go to and read about stuff and comment on stuff. I have a stream that I stream twice a week where you can just come and chat with me directly and get my take on whatever or send me code or something and then we'll look at it. And I have a Twitter, of course, and then there's the book and the forum for the book where people can comment and ask questions about the book if that's relevant. Awesome. We'll put those links, the ones that we have in the show notes, which I think is hopefully all of them. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. 
We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Cool. Let's go ahead and move on into picks. If you're not familiar with picks, so I'll go ahead and, and start so you don't have to be the first one or whatever to go. But but basically, we just pick things that we like, and we just kind of talk about those things and recommend them to people. So I'll go ahead and start us off this week. So the most interesting thing for me most recently, so I have to like, I don't know. I don't know that everybody has this, but like, you know, I had to add some fiber to my diet or whatever. And so there's a lot of ways that you can do that. Most of them taste pretty terrible and disgusting. And, or, or you take these gigantic horse pill things, which also suck. Anyway, my wife found these like fiber gummy things or whatever, which is not bad. I'm probably adding way too much sugar to my life, but they're not gigantic horse pills. And it's not like freaking like grainy stuff that you put in your drink that tastes disgusting. So yeah, that was pretty cool. And then I, um, nope, that, that's actually going to be my only pick this week because unfortunately I, I, can't, I can't review something that I haven't spent a lot of time on. So Christian, did you have anything really cool that you wanted to tell people about? So, I mean, the theme of this week for me is, is very much embracing imperfection or accepting that and not all things need to be perfect. So I've been there. Uh, dabbling around with ordering some things that I have been thinking were, would be fun to have on my walls. Uh, so I've been on uh, Fiverr and I've ordered a lot of things now that I'm kind of having to having to wait for and having to relinquish control, I guess. And that's a very interesting process because I need to just say that the quality is not going to be the same as if I was doing it, but the time that I'm saving in accepting that is immense. Mm-hmm. So a life thing there. Also, you can definitely recommend your book. That's totally cool too. You should you get that one for free. So, all right. Well, thanks for joining us today, Christian. And thanks everybody for listening. And that's it. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for coming. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.